0: Well, the idea, it's, a, it's sort of a sister movie to another movie I made called Devil's Backbone, which was already uh, set in the Civil War in Spain, and it dealt with brutality and innocence. And I think this movie deals with the same two issues, mm-hmm. is what happens to children in war. You know, in this case, it's, uh, a, a, it's after the war, but there is repression in mm-hmm. the rebels in the mountains and so forth. So thinking about it, I thought it would be a movie where you could create a fantasy world that was as, as real and sometimes as a scary or as uh, dangerous as the real world. You know, which is, is a very strong, very brutal movie. By no, by, you know, I, I actually showed the movie to, early on to a Hollywood uh, producer-director, very famous, and he looked at it and he said, oh, it's great if you could only cut the violence, the children would go, and will be a success i said but yeah but the whole point is to have the violent and the fantastic together no be afraid be very afraid there's nothing to fear except god whatever that means to you do i look on someone who
1: You're listening to The Fear of God, a podcast exploring the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre.
0: Oh, and welcome to another wonderful springtime 2018 episode of the fear of God podcast, your absolute favorite podcast that discusses things faithful and things fearful that happens to be hosted by people named Nathan and Reed that have been friends for almost two decades it is a very narrow lane. But it's one we all enjoy driving in. Uh, right now with you is Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is is as mentioned, dear friend of Nion two decades, Reed Lackey. But he said something about needing to go. He wasn't feeling real great, so he's gonna put a Mandrake under his bed. I don't really know what that's about, but you know I I, I, I know when I'm sick, I I love any sort of remedy, any sort of thing I can do that helps me get better, because Lord knows I hate being sick. Um, but that that was a new one. That really was a new one to me. I'm not hundred percent sure what that is all about. But Reed, you're Reed! Hi! You're back, I'm feeling much you're better. You're back. I'm feeling Here much you are. better. Man, a little mandrake Good. root
1: mandrake root in some milk and I'm right as rain. Everything's everything's great. Good. Yeah. That's wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's great. That's wonderful.
0: <laughs> you know, whenever you I think it was you recently on another episode said totally out of context or or, or in context to what you're saying, you said, I'm feeling much better now. And <laughs> Do you know what my do you know what my mind does when you say that? Uh
1: it's just going so, uh,
0: uh, what 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 scene I'm, I'm picturing? I'm conjuring
1: something in my own head and I'm blanking out on where I know that from. I know uh it's uh the sixth sense. That's right. It's from the when uh,
0: after after they the helped the little girl thing. who's been yeah, poisoned. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling much better now. Yeah, that's that's exactly oh, so where terrible. my brain goes. But it's funny cuz I couldn't conjure right. the I couldn't conjure the exact context. Oh, but yeah. So there it
0: is. So yeah, random six cents reference. You know, I just gotta I gotta make one every now and then. You know, uh, if you're a new listener to our show, we would highly encourage you to go check out last year's Springtime for Shyamalan series of oh, episodes. I was thinking about that um, just the other day. You know? How
1: much fun that was! It's was just oh, and glasses That's good. Ever ever more on the horizon with every
0: week. With every week, glass just gets closer and closer. I know it's it's you know what was that tagline again? That really people in glass. Really pl- people
1: tagline? in this house. Should not throw stones. And then, or, <laughs> or, or half <have> full <laughs> with a little question mark on it.
0: <laughs> Man, that was great. That was so great. So, yeah, we are, um, we are Nathan and Reed. We are this week, uh, right in the thick of hashtag del Toro, Toro, Toro. Um, we have our very first toe in the water of this series was the orphanage. Three weeks ago yeah. now, um, and then we covered The Devil's Backbone. Last week we covered Hellboy. Today we are covering Pan's Labyrinth, which is a pretty pretty seminal Del Toro flick. Um, and I think we're I think we're gonna have a good time with that conversation. Absolutely,
1: I'm looking very forward to it. But before we get into all of that, Nathan, I yeah? I, I have something what? that I've been burning and dying to ask you.
0: What? What are you watching? What are you reading?
1: What wow. are you listening to? Yeah, that's like you like that. I didn't even practice. I didn't you're, even practice. It just it a, just happened. Such a nerd. It just happened in my head. You
0: know what's hilarious about that? So listeners won't know. We sort of brief who is going to do, who is going to lead, what you're watching, <laughs> and it was not intentional at all. But when I watched this movie for the episode, I thought. It'd be pretty cool to do that in that <laughs> tune, but then I completely forgot, and there you are doing This is it. why we're friends. You're such a this nerd. This is why we're friends. And that's a yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, in the spirit of that, um, what am I watching? So, I, or reading, or, or listening yeah, to? Yeah. Um, what, is, what is all that? If I'm Frank, it's a pretty limited diet right now. There's a lot But you're on. Nathan. You're not Frank. I know, but <laughs> You, For a moment. I can you, put my Frank hat if on. If you
1: were Frank, then this is what you would. <laughs> if I were want, Frank. You would
0: right, right, right. Wow. Wow. It's gonna be that kind of episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, pretty pretty limited uh media consumption right now just due to a lot of busyness in life. I could say I did go take my kids to see Peter Rabbit. Hey, I I've did, seen I that. Did do that. Yeah, I took
1: my son to see that. What'd you think?
0: It was it was fine. That
1: was almost my exact reaction. I was like, Yeah, it was cute. It was fine.
0: Well, it's funny because my parents were there too and they they just laughed hysterically. My mom, anytime you have a talking animal, anthropomorphic (laughs) animal, she just loses it.
1: Her favorite show ever is Mr. Ed. She just loves that show. (laughs) Right, 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 right,
0: right. She's always trying to get back to that. You know, it's like that nostalgia (laughs) hit. Um (laughs) so so they loved it. And I liked it. Um it's funny, I do think overall it actually is pretty clever, Mm. you know, in the way that these you know sort of retread of old stories slash fables are and and i did think it was better than many of its ilk um sure i could i could see but it was it was funny sometimes you could i felt like i could see the script strings oh yeah Like they would really hit a joke really hard um and you're like okay okay you could you could have pulled back a little bit. On I that think one.
1: that's my general dislike with it is I thought it was cute and charming, but my overall distaste with it could all be summed up with it winks at the audience far too much. And I feel yeah. like it's too aware of its audience. And because of that, it, it brought me out so many times of the film where I was like, I don't.
0: I mean, I love Rose Byrne. I love uh, yeah. General Hux. I, I do love it. both of them. Um, I felt like the random short film that preceded it featuring the female rabbits was pretty useless. I don't um, know if we got like that one. An afterthought. Well, that would make sense because it really feels like an afterthought. Yeah, it's
1: funny. I don't um, know if we I don't know if we got that in my
0: screening. The other random what you're watching is in advance of Infinity War at the end of the month, which I already have tickets to, but I've been cherry picking some MCU films for my mm. kids. And we did just watch uh, Winter Soldier. And Well, all right. I, yeah. Throwing yeah, them the deep in at the end. Middle of end. <laughs> in the middle of it I was like, yeah, this one might have been a little, a little adult, <laughs> uh, a little, a little on the, a little violent. You know, we did have a little conversation after the episode, after the movie, about guns and sure, how guns are sure. not amazing things and freedom you know, versus we, we fear that and that whole thing. <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, if if a man with an eye patch ever you know highlights these giant uh, airships to you just be like no i think i'm out peace y'all um now in my defense it wasn't like the first mcu movie they'd seen we have been watching several um that said i was reminded i i love that movie mm, um mm-hmm. i think that would probably be in my maybe top 5 mcus um, and really reaffirmed how much affection I have for Chris Evans in that role. Yeah, absolutely. Because we did also just watch First Avenger as well. So that was you know, kind of that pairing. And uh those are those are just solid flips. Oh, they
1: really are. We uh my son uh saw today, uh my son saw both Guardians of the Galaxy for the first time. And those wow. and those are his Whoa. first yeah, and those are his first MCU yeah. movies. Um. So. Right. So. Yeah. Well, he's on spring break. See, I'm, so I'm he's tempted.
0: Like, oh, whatever. I'm tempted to show mine. The Guardian. The first Guardians. I do think oh, the second one's a little, a little on the edgy side. He style, loved but, the you know, second one. I showed. I showed mine Winter Soldier, and it's just <laughs> lots of guns and bullets and fighting. You know. He's, it anyway, was so, so funny because yeah. I had a
1: moment when I was talking to him. Uh, what listeners don't know is that at the moment of this recording, my my wife and son are out of town because they're on spring break, and my job I don't get a spring break, so I don't, so I'm I'm. Still Stuck in my job um which is great i'm grateful for it but but basically so i called him and i asked him like so yeah how did you like uh, guardians of the galaxy which one was your favorite he was like the second one and i just said i'm mary poppins y'all and then my son proceeds to like quote the whole scene to me all i wow. said was i'm mary wow. poppins y'all and then he's just like yeah is she is she cool yeah yeah she's she's cool i'm like Son, I'm like own it, son. Yeah, I'm proud, daddy, right now.
0: What's going to be funny? What's going to be funny is when he accidentally calls your wife a green whore. You know that's going to be really funny (laughs) with his photographic memory of lines. You know, yeah.
1: Hopefully they, hopefully they skip past that scene. We'll, we'll see. Let's see how it
0: goes. (laughs) I do think I'm going to have to cough through that scene when we watch it. Oh, that's funny. There's this great. I've got a great story of when I took my kids to see Wonder Woman. And most of those types of movies I tend to see first. Sure. You know, like, I'm going to expose myself to it and see kind of what the content level is and all that sort of stuff. What was Wonder Woman. I've got daughters. I was like, you know. Caution to the wind. You take them to see it. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, one, I'm covering their eyes and ears throughout pretty much all of the trailers. Well, then, during, which is a fantastic scene if you're an adult, but the scene of all of the innuendo on the ship between Chris Mm -hmm. Pine and Gal Gadot, it's great. It's a great bit of scripting. But it is just laden with innuendo. And for that whole like two minute stretch, I just kept going <coughs> <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> i mean literally just clearing my throat and coughing for the whole time because i was like i'm not gonna have my kids be like what are they talking about sleeping together Every, like, i don't know everybody in the theater is looking at you like will you please get a lozenge for the love of god right Right. Yeah. someone passed this man a lozenge <laughs> so anyway that's a long di- that's a long-winded way of talking about mine what 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 are you watching reading and or listening so
1: to uh mine is a reading and i have a, a very short story to go with it so For uh, Easter weekend, uh, which, again, listeners won't know that this is the weekend in which we're recording, um, or shortly thereafter, for Easter weekend, we were uh, up at my in-law's house and had a really nice rather spontaneous day with my family and uh we went to to visit this ship it was a ship that had been used in a number of films uh, the pirates of the caribbean films uh also was used in one scene of star trek generations and so we got to tour this little ship that was docked up near the city where they live and uh after that we very spontaneously were just like oh these local shops in in it's a it's a city but a very small city uh and then in downtown they had this uh, these these little like mercantile shops, consignment shops, everything, and they were doing an Easter egg hunt for kids. And so we were wandering around through there. It was just this really nice, pleasant, just walking around, supporting local businesses, finding these little trinkets and treasures along the way. And I picked up a book by a a journalist who I think only passed away maybe three or four years ago. His name is Studs Terkel, and he had only done 10 books in his in his life, as I understand. And they were all of a piece where he would interview various people. And it was like a sort of a personal journal type of thing. And so this particular book is called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And it's just ruminations from different people from different walks of life and different faiths um, about death and the afterlife and coping with life and uh, the hunger for faith and all this stuff. And I'm only about a third of the way through it right now, but it, there's, there's some gorgeous stuff in it. It's just people uh, reflecting as openly and, and I would presume as honestly as they can. On such things as, you know, mortality and life, death and everything like that. But it's uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a pretty lovely little book. But then it's all sort of wrapped up in the experience of how I stumbled across it, because I didn't even know of the book's existence. I just saw it, thought it found interesting and picked it up and, in this very spontaneous little jaunt. So Sounds like it. So, yeah. a-
0: was a lot of spontaneity for one day.
1: Yeah. It's just a ton of just random we had no plan and just went and went and did stuff. Yeah. Well it was those great. are
0: those are the best kind of days.
1: Yeah. So so it was great. So that was uh so that's my little reading on uh on this this yet another edition of And the Crickets <laughs> 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 You're not even gonna try it, are you? No, are I'm you...
0: not I'm not even... gonna attempt it. No, no I'll let you no. do it again. You you want me to do it again? Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah.
1: What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? And that's
0: as far as I can get. That's impressive. That's impressive. You can tell you are the musical (laughs) member of the band.
1: (laughs) Exactly. All right. Jolly
0: duo. Yeah. So today we are discussing uh, the... Penultimate entry in hashtag Del Toro Toro Toro, Pan's Labyrinth from 2006. Is that right? Yeah, 2006. 2006. You know, I see you've got that glass of wine. I hope there is not a wine bottle nearby, and I'm thankful in this moment that we are remote, we are distant from each other, that you are not going to use that in any sort of bludgeoning fashion. That's an awful scene. Oh my gosh, that's, that's an awful a, scene.
1: That is a, that is like, and here's one of the things. Like, we can sort of we can sort of start here. We had mentioned in a previous episode, I believe Devil's Backbone, where del Toro is a very compassionate filmmaker and that compassion just eeks off the screen. But at the same time, the violence is very extreme and rather abrupt. Um And when it comes, it's very jarring and very shocking. And I think the sensitivity in which the film is made highlights the violence all the more when it does come and makes it more graphic and makes it more sort of disturbing.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because my first note, that's why I was making an excited face and pointing at the oh. computer screen, which looked like I was pointing at you. Is I know. I was like, what did I do? My very first note says, Del Toro's compassion for monsters does not apparently extend to authoritarian <laughs> holes." So, you know... <laughs> I guess so, I guess so. yeah. I, I, do think,
1: I do think that of all of, the, of all of his films, I think the captain in Pan's Labyrinth gets my vote for his, his worst villain, like in terms of just the the, the, the most sort of um, vile and, and uh, bordering on purely evil sort of villain. Jacinto gives him a little bit of a run for his money and, and when we talk about Shape of waters.: well, I think there's a lot, lot I think there's a lot of
0: nuance to the Kaiju. I mean, there's a lot of like, listen, motivations that are really on display. They're pure.
1: They're pure instinct. That's all they are. They're just pure instinct. They're just like, here's a thing. Here's my face. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's all
0: I'm a monster. Um. So yes, yes, the captain. Captain's awful. A wretched, wretched character. So So I yeah go.
1: Well, I. I was just gonna say. So I don't know. Have you looked much? And I haven't myself done a very deep dive into this. I've only sort of skirted the surface, but uh when uh, depending on what uh, how you watch Pan's Labyrinth, if you acquire it by DVD and I would assume certain streaming uh medium have this as well, uh, uh Guillermo del Toro has a very very brief like 30 second prologue to it. Hmm. And he makes a comment uh and this is this would be considered maybe our trivial bits section, but he makes a comment in it. He said um You know, you're about to watch Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, This film almost killed me. And I had seen in a couple of like interviews and little uh, just doing some very uh, high level research, nothing too intense. uh, I'd seen that he had made that statement several times where he said this film almost killed me. And I'm looking I was looking a, a bit deeper into it. I guess that. And again, I'm only skirting the surface. I guess the production was terribly fraught. That there was a that there was a lot of bumps in the road, including like a rival studio like sabotaging their set what? and stealing you know certain props and certain uh, elements of their film along the way, and um, 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 uh, what he calls and I did not hear this story. I feel bad bringing it up when I don't have the details to back it up. But what Guillermo del Toro called uh, briefly a mutiny crew, which I was like, wow, wow. that's yeah. So so i want to and and it's i feel remiss that i did not do this research prior to our conversation but i am even following this conversation i'm probably very interested to go in and and like really read more about the production of it and find out more because evidently it was something that he had to make basically by the skin of his teeth ba- basically you know drag himself through this material which makes it all the more impressive to me that we get the film we have because normally you hear about fraught productions like that and it's a mess and and sure, the the sure. films themselves are just tonally all over the place and they they lack cohesion but somehow despite what you know basic research would indicate was a a terribly difficult production Del Toro wound up making uh, what I don't think is too far of a stretch to go ahead and say is a masterpiece. I mean, I know I've 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 toned back a little bit on using that word, but but goodness, the, like I mean, if how, it were how can apply, I even, how can
0: I even nuance that? You know, it's like I know. Okay, but well, if I, I guess were it's to... a masterpiece, I would definitely call it. I would definitely, for me, call it. You know, now I joked earlier, but Pacific Rim scratches a real particular itch in terms of that blockbuster kind of quality. But sure, sure. Of his quote unquote artsy flicks, I, I mean. What ambivalence a listener might have heard in my attitude towards Like a Hellboy and even a little bit towards Devil's Backbone is not at all present for Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, this is <clears throat> such a fully realized vision that that, really is, is. that is just riddled with, you know, food for thought. And I thought you were going to say the movie almost killed him because he accidentally... Eight off of what he thought was craft services but it was really the pale man's table you know bike and, and <laughs> i don't know man and I, I gotta these, say i can i can eat these grapes <laughs> is that your del toro <laughs> yeah that was that was really bad this is why i don't the, do the things right
1: no i understand no that pale man like oh that well we'll we'll, we'll get yeah, there yeah um, we'll save and, him in general, uh, so so talk for a little bit about like you know what what you like, anything you don't like about it um, about this film in general. How what viewing uh, of, was this, this for was you?
0: Number two.
1: You need to start watching movies more than twice so you can stop making that joke. <laughs> do
0: I make that joke a lot?
1: <laughs> Almost every episode. Sometimes I cut it out, but yeah, really, you know, yeah, I do? And, and When you've seen the film twice, you always say. Number two. <laughs> wow!
0: Without fail. Man, my memory is getting bad, y'all. <laughs> um, my wife just accused me of repeating myself earlier tonight, so now I'm like doubly, um, <laughs>
1: <Don't be self-conscious. laughs>
0: doubly, doubly self-conscious. Yeah, so I, I've, I saw it in the. Th- uh, I th- I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater because it would have come after Orphanage, right? Yeah. Uh no. Uh, no, Orphanage is 2007. Orphanage. A
1: okay. lot of the. A lot of the. Maybe. Uh, See my understand. Whatever. Well, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Just, just in brief. <laughs> sorry, just in brief. A lot of the reason why people, The Orphanage is a worthy film. The Orphanage is a fantastic film. I do people think pay attention it,
0: to it because of Pan.
1: I think people paid attention to it because Guillermo del Toro had come out with Pan's Labyrinth, and it was, and he was only a producer on The Orphanage. Right. It was J. A. Bayona, but. I I think that a lot of because he was a producer on the film, a lot of people paid attention to the orphanage because it was Guillermo del Toro. It was kind of like the soft follow up to Pan's Labyrinth. So so yeah. I think um,
0: I think it says more than I'd like to that we just took like ten seconds of dead air to recognize just how bad Nathan's memory is and <laughs> when he saw a thing and what he saw. I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or on mm-hmm. video. I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater the first time. I uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy is a strong word, but I. I th- thoroughly appreciate pan's labyrinth i think it is engaging um in fact it was funny the day after i watched it this this subsequent time we had some easter some guests over for easter and i'm talking to uh, the other couple about the movie and the husband is really into history shout out Stephen. and i'm going into the content of the movie and my wife's standing there over here and she's like how do you watch this stuff um and then i put the and then i put the pale man hands up on my eyes i really (laughs) do that i watch (laughs) (laughs) it like that yeah yeah (laughs) um no I, i i really enjoy so much about this movie there's in a way that i don't feel like for me personally devil's backbone accomplishes just the effects the stylistic quality what what is so strong about a hellboy in terms of the visual execution but with hellboy gets a little mired in the ip nature of it you know what i mean it's a, it's a it's a sure. borrowed yeah. property is not at all present in the pan's labyrinth so he's really able to let the visual imaginations kind of run wild um right right and it just it just works on so many levels and i watched it this time with just kind of a this, this may, this may, and, and you can, you can feel free to pivot me towards the tail end of the conversation here, cause it may open up a door unintentionally to thematic stuff. After rewatching it, I, I kind of mauled, I've been, I've been deliberating since it, like, is this a happy ending? Is this just a tragic mm-hmm. ending? You know what I mean? Like, it, sure. it kind of depends on which character you're, you're, you're considering. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. You know, clear, clearly for, uh, Ophelia, uh, although you could argue, maybe it is a happy ending for her in terms of her quote unquote afterlife slash imagination experience, you know, mm-hmm. definitely for the resistance fighters, it's a bit of a happy ending cause they kind of liberate themselves. Um, anyway, it, it just yeah. kind of left me really pondering that I don't feel like it's a real straightforward resolution. You know, right,
1: um, right. Well, it's definitely a melancholy ending. There's no, sure, there's no sure, doubt sure. that there's a bittersweetness to to what plays out. I do think that, and and I don't want to obviously, it would be profound hubris for me to put words in Del Toro's mouth, but I think I think he would consider that Ophelia that he gives her a happy ending. There's a sure. tragedy
0: to and it. I can see that. Yeah.
1: But but I, I think he works very hard to to make her ending feel to a way i mean let's let's uh look at her conscious self and we can maybe get into some themes here but the her conscious self whether real or imagined she ends with applause applause for having her her done this profoundly benevolent thing and and yes while the quote unquote reality of that may be much darker and grimmer i don't think it's any less real what she's done and uh, and what she's accomplished by what she's given up, uh, which is definitely uh, pivoting into themes. But, yeah, I think Del Toro works very hard to give her what he might call a happy ending. You,
0: um, you, ina- you inadvertently made this a talking point for subsequent episodes, but, like, is this sort of opening one of those things that bothers you, or, like, you can kind of brush it off? You know, like the flash-forward sort of scenario? Or do you, um, or because you like the movie, you don't really give it that much weight
1: no because the no because this is not showing me something that happened later uh like so well, so what yeah. it, the the one singular image is of just her on the ground you know with right. the, with the blood right. and everything but I, I guess i would say it here because uh, i have mentioned this before listeners who may not have heard these previous conversations i get bugged by filmmakers who show me something from the two-thirds mark and then play out the rest of their film narrative, sure. you know, linearly. This is showing me the ending. So, right. so I'm not as bothered when you show me the very ending. Uh, and Del Toro does this a few more times. Have you, have you seen Crimson Peak? No. Okay. Um, it, is not, it is not going to spoil where it ends to simply let you know that the opening shot is from the ending of the film. Gotcha. So Del Toro does this somewhat stylistically. That doesn't really bother me because I know that we're basically dealing with a bookend of sorts. Sure. Um, bookends don't bother me. What bothers me is... I feel like if you have to show me something from two thirds into your film, then you don't trust your setup. You don't you don't trust your style or you don't trust your audience enough to simply follow you into the film. And with this, yeah, you do have that opening moment with Ophelia. We don't know exactly what's happening to her at this moment, uh, although, yeah, the ending reveals what that what that context really was. But it's still again, I view it more as a as a bookend than a cheat that sure, you that sure. you don't yeah, yeah, yeah. trust its its stylistic sort of uh, meanderings, as it were.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm sure you'll regret ever having shared that because I'll bring it <laughs> multiple <laughs> no, times no. in the future. I'll clarify um, it every single time. If <laughs> <I like. laughs> no, this, this. This movie seems to do what you uh, really oh, don't I, like. How about this? How about this? Uh, what about what about this movie? You, you really don't like it, right? <laughs> um, in terms of pure just technical stuff. Goodness gracious, the fawn. Execution visually is, yeah. is staggering. I mean, it's yeah. staggering.
1: Which supposedly those legs were somewhat experimental in terms of their their mechanical apparatus, like because they they needed to bend, but but in a in a way that compromised the uh, Doug Jones is that actor, and uh, you know he's a he's a visual genius in terms of uh, how he can contort his body. But uh, what I know about those those the leg apparatus is that it was supposed to bend. In a way where it compromised his visual, his um stability, like his center of gravity. Sure. Um, so they had to compensate some of that. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but I know that it was a somewhat experimental and somewhat troubled apparatus. But so it's amazing that it looks the way that it does. Because man, that fawn looks incredible. Yeah. I mean, oh, yes. it looks very frightening and somewhat inviting at the same time. It really strikes a very specific tone that is that is well, very I, impressive.
0: I know. I. I... Beat this drum a good bit, and even referenced a, uh, a sizable amount of Hellboy. Like, man, it I I'm sure I'm sure that um, budgetarily and just shorthand in this day and age, there's so much value in CGI. But goodness mm. gracious, when when an artist commits to not going that route, or at least commits yeah. as much as possible to not going that route, it just it translates so much better. Um, it
1: really does. Yeah. And you can see it constantly in Del Toro's work. Yeah. It's, yeah.
0: This is a random allusion, though it is indirectly Del Toro. Uh, we referenced his work on The Hobbit, or almost work on The Hobbit. And I think, I just recently showed my kids the Lord of the Rings films, and for all that I love and adore about Andy Serkis's Gollum, it doesn't hold up that great, you know? The CG um, visual? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you, you really can see the strings... In a way that probably at release time, you weren't, you were either a lot more sympathetic to or just didn't really notice that much. But oh, you know. I can,
1: I can remember having conversations about how impressive it was at the time. I think we, I think it's just come so far that sure, now sure. we're not impressed because we've seen where 20 years in, well, almost 20 years in, it's now, you know, th- this is a very, uh, it's progressed so substantially that, yeah, you look back at the, I think that was 2000, 2001, and 2002, uh, or around that time frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, the, yeah, the, the CG capabilities at the time, I think we were all very impressed with it. But, sure. yeah,
0: now it pales to what can be done. Um, right. And you just which, imagine, it, it would. It, you got to wonder, as a Del Toro, there's probably, especially with something like a Hellboy, you know, when, when major studios involved and there's lots of constraints and times and budgets and that sort of thing. Like you gotta imagine he's fighting hard to be like, no, you know, we're doing it practically.
1: Yeah. Because to this day, and and you you and I can go back to our Universal Monsters uh creation, which we know Del Toro loves the Universal right, Monsters, right. makeup, well crafted makeup, is not dated. It will, it will it will never be right. dated right. like some of those makeup effects from films from the 80s, like that is still it plays the way that it did you don't look at some of the creature transformations you don't even look at some of the jack pierce work on like frankenstein or uh the mummy and think like oh wow that looks really dated no it looks solid exactly yeah. as good as it looked back then so so it's so it's almost ageless and it's you know this is a rabbit trail we don't have to follow very much but it really sort of brings into question the the embrace of technology i love what technology is able to do but it feels like you're looking at something which at the time the lord of the rings was astoundingly impressive and now because of the quality of your tv screens and because of how much better cg is in newer films you can begin to see those strings a little bit whereas the practical makeup effects on in in pan's labyrinth on the fawn on the pale man the pale man is always going to look great he oh, will man. he will yeah. never he will never be dated 60 years from now the pale man will still look as freaky and as terrifying maybe you know an astute listener might ding me on this maybe the eyeballs because the eyeballs are clearly not an apparatus but his general makeup aesthetic is is still going to be uh just as creepy and effective as it was as it is right, right now
0: right yeah yeah so yeah, I mean that was primarily my note there in terms of just the the amazing visual of the fawn itself. Sure,
1: sure. I'll I'll pivot to to a love because yeah, I yeah. do I, I I do love this film this this reviewing of it. I always respected it, and so right. I would always say that I respected it. Um, and this viewing solidified, like yeah, no, I I I love this film. Although, and you said something earlier, and I would, uh, I would agree with this. It's like, although, especially in parts, it's hard to enjoy. And right. that's, a whole, that's a whole other conversation, how you can love something that's difficult to enjoy. I mean, my favorite film is The Exorcist, so I know all about loving something that you don't necessarily enjoy what you're seeing. Right. But, uh, but the film is so narratively rich, narratively, narratively complex, uh, yeah. thematically provocative – um every element of it somehow works
0: together um and and there's a lot of very i'm sorry to cut you off but there's no, a lot fine. of just the definition and the motivation of every character is very clear
1: you yes. know and oh, and yes.
0: for what could have been just sort of phone in background parts in the doctor and mercedes i mean those are those are strong characters oh terribly substantial
1: and yeah.
0: To a degree that you all,
1: you get the sort of richness that you expect, because all of our listeners are readers, mm-hmm. you get the richness that you expect from prose. I mean, sure. it, it is that level of, of depth, which is really impressive because you're still dealing with a visual medium where so much is subtext and so much is is read from faces and read from metaphor. Um, so, I mean, it is it is it a is. staggering achievement.
0: It is interesting, just uh, I'm, I'm, my brain is in the, in the thick of, you know, 1944 Spain right now. But I, it makes me wonder, storytelling-wise, you know, all of these movies get tested, you know, in front of yeah. audiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I would wonder, and I, I imagine there might be, and it's kind of fun to just ponder, like, was there a test screening that did not include that front-end telegraph of Ophelia's death? Because like, yeah, if, be if you yeah. don't know that's coming, I mean the scene is already terrible. When it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking when the yeah. captain shoots her. But like, yeah. especially where you do not know that's coming, it, it's uh, you almost it's he almost does you a kindness in basically saying like, all right, everybody, <laughs> just letting this you is, know, <laughs> just letting you know she doesn't make it. Um, yeah. You know, now that you know that, let's let's Have you story. know connect all the dots here right. because. Because I wonder how how traumatic that would be as a viewer. Because at that point in the film, you think the happy ending is coming because the resistance has mm-hmm. come to to storm the compound, you yeah. know. And it's like, yeah. all right, we're our heroes, our heroes are going to win. And mm-hmm. then that happens, you know. So yes. I could sort of see yes. the possibility that there was an early cut of that that did not include her in the front.
1: Yeah, that would be interesting to look at. But then, at the same token, Del Toro is such a very Deliberate filmmaker. Oh, he's very intentional. Yeah. Yes. yes so, yes. so at that, at that token, like I do wonder, and I honestly don't know the answer to this question. I do wonder if he would even submit his films to a to a test screening. Sure. I know that sometimes the studios demand it, depending on the distribution. But um, I would wonder if he would even do that because he's he all everything that I see about him for all his overwhelming compassion and sensitivity I very much see like no I I have a very specific vision right for right. what this is supposed to be and um and so I would wonder if he would fight against hey th- they're going to love it or not when we release it and that's going to be the the culmination of everything that we've done I know um,
0: I know that we've um, deviated a little bit of late but I do want to camp out for a little bit in just what would be our traditional scares camp here um, sure sure we've already alluded to it but that stinking wine bottle in the face goodness gracious yeah, you know it's what so, so what's so if we can call it this great about that moment is you have this extreme outburst of violence that gives you such an – so it's it's a it's a red shirt. Basically, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. But you have this great moment where you really, as a storyteller, illustrate to the your audience: this is who you're dealing with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it's it's too early for him to do anything like that to a character we are starting to like yet. Right. Um, but right. nonetheless, it 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 just drives home. You could say it pounds uh, home mm. what <laughs> kind of who we're dealing with here. Yeah. So that, goodness gracious, that scene is rough.
1: Yeah, because you also don't like at first. And here's the other. Shock about that scene is at first you think he's just going to hit him once and like knock him out, which right. wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility. But no, sure. he does not stop. No, 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 caves the man's face in with this wine bottle, and the camera doesn't cut away. And that, nope. and 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 that's one thing that I would applaud Del Toro for is the boldness of his willingness to show the the violence that we're that we're dealing with here. It's not gratuitous. It's not uh, flagrant or exploitative. He's dealing with the, the, the horrors of war, as it right, were. Right. He's dealing with the horrors that men exact upon one another. And and so I applaud him for being willing to to not pull the camera away in moments like that, but then later not show us the torture of the stutterer or not show us, even though we do see the aftermath of the torture right, of the stutterer, right, right. but but to not show us that, you know, that depth and then to not show us exactly the, the sort of the, in the same sort of graphic level, uh, Ophelia's death. Uh, yeah. Spoilers for ever, everybody for,
0: <laughs> but I mean, you know, you're, you're told at the very beginning.
1: Yes, that's true. It's true. It's the opening shot. But, uh, so, so to not show us those kind of things just exhibits, I think a real savviness on del Toro's part to, to be very, very specific about what he wants his audience to see and not see. That's tremendously impressive.
0: Well, and you, you brushed up against this a minute ago in terms of the horrors of war. You know, what's interesting, juxtaposing this with Devil's Backbone, I don't know if you noticed this. Did you notice that Pan's Labyrinth takes place in 1944? Hellboy originates mm, in 1944? yes. yes. I wonder. I don't remember Devil's Backbone anchoring it to a specific time frame, at least visually. But I imagine it's slightly before that. Yeah, slightly okay.
1: before that. Because because if I'm remembering correctly, and Devil's Backbone has been a few weeks now. But if I'm remembering correctly, Devil's Backbone took place like towards the end of the Spanish Civil War. Mm. Pan's Labyrinth is like like the war either has ended in some places or is ending. Like it is so so. Devil's Backbone is just slightly before where gotcha. what pan's labyrinth well
0: and and what's interesting is devil's backbone basically shows the man on the ground sort of response to the state right. of war whereas right. pan's labyrinth shows you man in command um mm, mm-hmm. yeah and it's interesting in terms of this notion of the horror of war like he and 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 perhaps again russian close to theme like he he drinks the kool-aid mm. you know this is what happens when you put people who are inherently control freaks In a position of power in a season of violence. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. Because it's not like those were required steps of violence you took. These were indulgent things that you opted to execute. Um, yeah,
1: and no and and so so callous to the aftermath when he discovers that they were telling the truth. Because for listeners, for listeners who uh, may be checking this out and have never seen the film, uh, there's this father and his son oh, who were wandering yeah, yeah. through the God, woods. And, and they're captured by the captain's—we keep referencing this captain. That's sort of the main antagonist of the film. Um, they're captured by the captain's soldiers, and so the captain goes to question them, and they insist that they were merely hunting rabbits. That, that's they, all they were doing. They were not spies. They were not trying to transfer information or anything. They were simply hunting rabbits. He brutally beats the son to death with a wine bottle and then guns down the father, the grieving father, like right after that, and then, in searching their material— finds a dead rabbit and in his coldness immediately following that looks at his soldiers and says maybe you'll search them more thoroughly before you disturb me next time and I'm like right. good yeah. lord yeah. Like the, 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 the apathy that he has towards human life and human existence and yes you're right it's giving someone with that lack of humanity a position of power and control that's going to be the end result they're, right. they're going to care right. abuse nothing
0: Yeah, extreme abuse right absolute There are a couple more I can pepper throughout the rest of the conversation, but one real specific sort of scare, you know, we've, we've talked about the pale man and no question that scene more or less from beginning to end is just traumatizing. But I was at home as occasionally happens here, which happened with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. My wife was out of the house Hmm. and we have a 14 month old. Well, I don't know if you pick up on this, but during the thin man, the thin man, the pale man (laughs) uh, chase, there is this thread of, I think this is where it's happening, of audio that's faint but present of of children or a child crying. Does this ring a bell Mm. at all? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, multiple times, Reed, during that scene, I paused it because I was like, am I hearing my kid? (laughs) (laughs) Like, and then I would pause it, and it would go completely silent. Okay, okay, fine. It's not her. Turn it back on. Two minutes would pass, and it's happening again. Like what? What is this? Because you know, like you're you don't want to be that dad who's like ignoring your child screaming in the back of the house while you're watching a movie, (laughs) right? right, right, Of course, right? It was so funny. I was just like, is this is this happening?
1: I know. Yeah, because I think her brother is not born at that point. So I can't remember during the pale man scene, her brother's not born yet. I don't believe. But um, but what
0: I'm saying is I don't I don't think it's I think it's just layered into the mix. I don't mean it's meant to be the
1: brother. oh that it's just there very yeah yeah yeah, oh, yeah yeah yeah
0: wow. I could be wrong, but that's where it is in my notes, and so I think it's roughly that same. Yeah, it wouldn't, uh, it
1: wouldn't surprise me to find that out. Um, Yeah. So the pale man scene in general is uh, it gets a lot of credit and rightfully so for being perhaps one of the scariest, if not the scariest moment in the film. But one of the things that I love that really stood out to me with this viewing is the fawn itself is frequently terrifying and and its general look. You're not quite sure whether to trust it. You're not quite sure whether it's benevolent or not. Um, And particularly in the climactic scene where it's you know trying to coerce her to simply allow it to take what it says would be just a tiny drop of her baby brother's blood right know, to open the portal right. and supposedly save them and everything and 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 you in that moment or at least I I, in that moment, I, I've seen the film a few times and couldn't quite remember. I was like, is he meant to be benevolent at this moment? Right, is he right. meant to be on her side or is it a trick or a trap or, 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 what is it? And, and, you know, you discover at the end sort of, at least in her mind, uh, what the, what the whole thing is. We may be, I feel bad that we're do, that we're considering this if we do this, this late in the conversation, but should we summarize in general the plot or should we just assume people should have seen this movie?
0: Uh, young girl's mother gets married to the captain because he has impregnated her. He's a, he's a high ranking officer. The young girl is very imaginative and a reader, like many of our listeners, and <laughs> starts having visions of these little fairies and pixie like creatures, uh, that, that guide her to the fawn who sort of imbues with her the knowledge of this sort of Fanciful destinies she has as this princess of this underworld, and and off we go. And so it's this yes. gothic, dark fairy tale of her dalliances juxtaposed with the horror of being in the thick of the Spanish Civil War. I mean, it's it really is. You might call it a masterpiece. I mean, you.
1: <laughs> I mean, I you do.
0: You might. You might. <laughs> you, you do. You do. I'll, do I you think? Do you think? There's probably no real right answer here but you know kind of in the way i posed the happy or sad ending earlier like how much do you feel like is is meant how much do you feel like is meant to be real if any you know like because i was prepared for this question so oh yeah yeah all right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. because because clearly the mandrake is real well clearly she has taken a thing and put it under the bed which is not necessarily meant to suggest it is literally a screaming baby like Mandrake thing. Sure. Uh, Sure. But we also see that very distinct image that I think is meant to be highly suggestive of how we're supposed to take it all. When the captain over uh, uh, sees her talking to the fawn and he does not see the fawn, Mm -hmm. but you could make the case that it's a sort of child's, Thing the fawn itself is a trickster, as you just alluded to, so right. it would right. it, it wouldn't bother me for someone to say, "Well, of course the fawn can't be seen by an adult." I, I don't know. It was really it's it's a, lo- fa- a lot a lot to ponder there.
1: Yeah, and it is fascinating. So I'm going to lean on one Mr. Bill Watterson, which if that name does not ring a bell to our listeners, Calvin and Hobbes, that is the creator of Calvin and Hobbes. He was asked uh in one of his very rare interviews. He was asked, "Is Hobbes really alive?" A la Toy Story, where he sure. you know just uh, turns into this pla- you know this uh, mm-hmm. yep. felt tiger whenever adults are around, or is it all in Calvin's imagination? And I can't remember verbatim Watterson's response to this, but I-, I will, as best I can, summarize his response and say that this is how I interpret Pan's Labyrinth. He says it's really about perspective. Calvin sees Hobbes one way, and the rest of the world sees Hobbes a different way. So it is really all uh, so you could take that to mean that it's all in Calvin's head, but it's but he would say that it's not quite that simple because when you're dealing with reality, people would do want to hone in on, you know, well, what is real and what is real to many people becomes like what you can verifiably back up as fact or as truth. Right. But what's taking place to Ophelia is very real. All sure. of it. Right. Uh, and, and, and yes, there does not appear to be a physical fawn standing in front of her that the captain can also see. But that is a very real thing that is taking place to her in her heart and mind in that moment. And if we're going to have the conversation about real, I think we do a disservice to dismiss and just say like, oh, well, it's not real. It's in her head. I was like, no, they're, they're, that is way too dismissive and too simplistic in my mind and oh, yeah, yeah. to say totally. you know, that that's what's happening. So, so to me, because you look at, look at the cold reality of the film, she puts a plant... And again, listeners, if you don't know the context for this, just follow us with the metaphor. Then Uh, she is told that if she puts this mandrake plant in a glass of milk or a a bowl of milk and put it under her the bed of her very sick mother, her mother will improve. She does this thing and her mother improves to the bafflement of the doctors and of everybody else around her mother improves Um, then through a very unfortunate coincidence. Uh, the captain said captain discovers this mandrake under the bed is just outlandishly offended about it. And the mom then chucks the mandrake into the fire where from Ophelia's perspective, the mandrake very uh, disturbingly is screaming and crying in pain as it's withered by this fire. When it is, when it expires, when the mandrake is burned up, the mom immediately goes into some sort of arrest with the pregnancy. Mm, Right, right, And she's she's immediate. So if we're just dealing with cold, hard facts, coincidentally, the mom got better when the mandrake root was under her bed and got worse after she threw it in the fire. To, like, perilously worse because she dies in childbirth after that. So, in in one sense, you could say, yes, it's all in Ophelia's head, but things are happening in the real world to substantiate her perspective. And right. that's what I think is so complicated and I think rich and rewarding about exploring this film is because that is why it is too easy. She is not merely imagining these things. Right. There is an actual uh, tangible play happening with what she impacts, you know, with this these missions that the fawn sends her on and everything, which is why – I think once she dies and then in her mind, once she dies, she returns to this realm where she is a princess and her father and mother are on the throne and she has passed the test and she has saved her brother's life, which she has, by the way, in the very cold real world. She has saved her brother's life. And so in that sense, I think, yes, you could say, hey, she's just imagining this in the throes of death or whatever it is. But it is no less real to the substance of of her right. story, you know. Totally. So yeah, that's that's kind of how I see it. I know that's a perhaps a bit more heady than than no, I mean listeners I think that's would like that's but appropriate.
0: And I think, are you open to just let's let's swim around let, in the let's let's do it. The, let's the bell- let's the bell- just follow the belly, the belly of the tree. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's do it and let the let the gem- or. Rolly we could say, scroll over us what
1: <laughs> or we could say let's wander into the labyrinth and see how we make it out <laughs> let's yeah,
0: do that yeah so this is this this is literally coming to me right now so hold on to your hold on to your butts it's going to be good mm. no, i'm i'm kidding um it, it might it might be good it might be just something we address in 2 seconds and move on from so I've referenced it a couple times. There's this podcast I've been listening to, The Bible for Normal People, and I just happened to listen to one today that, pardon the probably intentional, you know, uh, controversy baiting title of this particular episode, but it was called Is the Bible True? Mm. And it was a really fascinating sort of talk about the, the word. And the concept of truth and like how we interact with that, people are gonna hear that and be like, "Oh my god, you're a heathen!" No, it was actually really fascinating. It, it's it's worth your listening, just kind of to engage that. But but the the host talks about the nature of, as you just alluded to, factual truth. Um, are there certain things presented as? your hair is brown. Well, that's a factual truth. Well, yes, certain aspects of the Bible are factually true. Some of them are a little, you know, seem to conflict with certain other places. So there's the factual truth nature. Well, then there is the sort of, um, you know, does it, is it instructive for truthful living kind of nature? So the point being, there's, there's different levels. And when you purely ask the question, is a thing true? It's not quite as simple as, as what you may want, you know, like it requires sure, some unpacking. Right. So so that's got my brain spinning a little bit on this and so so two thoughts uh uh about Ophelia's experience. One is do you think there is a commentary happening that her imaginings are so dark? Be- what I mean by that mm. is mm. is is there a commentary the movie's trying to make that a war-torn society, a war-torn culture. I don't know the length of time of the Spanish Civil War, but my guess is it probably been going on for a couple of years. She is probably, what, eight, nine in the movie. So is very much in the thick of this. Her father has been killed um, and is now being thrust into this new scenario that she is not a fan of and and in one of the most heartbreaking lines of the movie um, in questioning whether she should call her new the Captain Father... Carmen, the mother, tells her it's just a word. Oh my God, what a heartbreaking line! Right. right. Um, so, are the are her imaginations dark because it's just kind of a gothic story? Are her imagina- imaginings dark because the culture she is a part of is crumbling around her? You know what I mean? Like, so, so. Sure. Sure. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's if if I intend that for a long conversation, but it's it's something that struck me while we were talking about the real or not real nature of her stuff. You right, know, right? Um, um, there yeah. is
1: there just in a brief response, there is a definite relationship between the visions that she has and the fantastical adventures that she goes on. And what's taking place in the real world around her. There's a, there's a relationship that I don't know if we, even if we had another hour from now to unpack this, that we'd be able to, to really get to the bottom of. And I think that's part of what makes the material so rich is that, sure. yes. So there is, there is a definite relationship, I believe, between the, um, the mixture of fear and fancy that's taking place in what she's seeing. Because it's not all horrific, quite a bit of it is dark or, or has a kind of a sinister edge to it. But I mean, the fairies are benevolent creatures. They're friends. Um, Even, even the pale man, we keep talking about the, the terror of that scene. Uh, The feast before him is, is appeasing and appealing. And, and yes, there's a threat that kind of comes to, you know, don't you dare pluck two grapes, but, but there is something uh, there. There's a mix of, Hey, this is fun and fanciful. With, hey, there's a very sinister thing happening beneath the surface. And I think that's very intentional in the sense that these people, the captain himself, and this is what I mean when I talk about the del Toro's compassion, because this ekes through even in the captain. The captain thinks he's right. He's presented as such a a profoundly compelling villain because he thinks that he is... You know, this champion, this leader, you know, you can see when the way he puts on his uniform and the way he commands uh, in the in the almost gleeful way he. Oh, yeah, this is a this is a a good example in the real of what I'm talking about with her dark visions is the way that he describes how he's about to torture the stutterer. So he says, you know, at first you're going to you're going to tell me things and I'm not going to believe you but then after I use this I'll trust you a little bit more after I use this you know we will have a bond you and I we'll be almost like brothers and it's like Oh, my God. You know, and he's talking and he's talking about it's very sadistic, but he's talking about it in this relational language, which we equate as being very inviting and very comforting. Like you're in a relationship with something, but he's talking about inflicting pain and suffering in the context of this of this relationship. So there's this sort of fanciful veneer that is hiding and masking a very overt, sinister, malevolent intention. And I think that's what her visions are are mirroring um, is this notion that like, yeah, the 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 whole substance of the the frog, you know, uh, gobbling up all of the the bugs and killing the tree, you know, like uh, there's there's this notion that there's a thing. There's a very natural order to things that are happening and there's a very unnatural dying that's taking place at the same time there's a very unnatural atrocity and so i'm gonna explore this for just a second and i apologize because i'm at the moment somewhat thinking out loud that there is in the way the captain and the soldiers treat the people and treat uh the world around them yes there is this uh this maliciousness this this uh malevolence as it were and and they themselves feel themselves right and consider themselves on the right side of things, even when they witness atrocities like none of the soldiers leave after they watch the captain beat the man to death with a wine bottle. None of the soldiers They they just sort of sigh like, whew, that was rough. And then move on. Like, right, none of them right. are going to defy him. None of them are going to disobey one of his orders. And and so that that to me speaks to they've accepted this as a natural element of what they're moving through. This is just right. the natural horrors of war. This is natural. But we see it as very as we should, we see it as very unnatural. It's very um anti-human as it were to to treat other human beings in this in this capacity. Even something like and it's it's a it's a more subtle version of this, I think, but even something like he's pointing the gun at the at the soldier who's been wounded in the neck and can't speak, he's pointing the gun, and the soldier keeps batting the gun away. Oh god, yeah, you
0: yeah, know? yeah,
1: and yeah. and again, the sadism in in the captain's intention as he's just continuing to point the gun and let the soldier bat it away uh, before finally firing through his hand and killing him. Uh, yeah, there there is this there's this strange juxtaposition. Uh Between what we would consider to be almost commonplace and graphically unnatural, and that I think speaks to what del toro 's kind of trying to to scratch at is just the the monstrous things human beings will do to one another and the monstrous things that we will enact upon one another but there 's a flip side to it as well, and that i 'll uh you look like you 're burgeoning with something, so i don 't know if you're just listening to no
0: me. well i I feel like i 've got uh something brewing like, like you just said a minute ago in terms of like, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I don't know if you've have this. So I drank coffee today to prep for our thing. And now I've got a cider and I'm not sure if they're canceling each other out and it's making my brain all dull, <laughs> but, um, which is very possible. But, um, there's such a clear juxtaposition of kind of authoritarianism versus imagination, like old versus young war versus kind of innocence, if you will. And this, like this is all happening while we're talking, so it's nothing I pre-discovered. But what I wrote down just sure. now is the the stories we tell ourselves, mm. and I mm. think it's so significant. Uh, uh, like I did a minute ago with a random preface, I had we'll call it a therapist friend one time <laughs> uh, who who gave some of the wisest counsel I'd ever heard uh, in a season of potential distress a season of actual distress um, and what they said was because because uh, if we go with the idea that perhaps it was me looking for aid here and and not really finding it in the immediate vicinity what they said to me was five years from now when you look back do now what you'll be proud of then and yeah. and that I'm gonna I'm gonna shunt that a little to the side and this notion or, or what I've sort of taken from that in especially uh, a life phase where in the church, you know, like the notion of the hero, your, your sort of spiritual heroes uh, tend to keep not being heroes. And, and so trying yeah. to figure out, okay, what is does it, what does, what does that mean? You know, how do you, how do you cope when people you look up to are so are such big screw ups to be real blunt about it. And sure. and it, it felt like it just sort of kept happening. and, You know, so this notion of kind of be your own hero really kind of struck home with me. Like, like, you know, cultivate in yourself and that's, you know, some that that might sound real like, I don't know, hoity-toity or something, I don't know, but like just being mindful, like you can be that thing you aspire to and that thing you admire in other people, like um, and so where I'm kind of angling on this is this notion of the story we tell ourselves. What's really powerful about Ophelia's story is there is not an adult encouraging her. There's not. Right, right. I mean, and and what we call things and the names we assign things. I, I can't think of a more telling line in that movie than what we referenced a minute ago. Like Carmen, the mother says when Ophelia's questioning what to call the captain, it's just a word. No, Ophelia right. is correct. No, it is not just a word because the names right. we give things matter, and the names yes. we give things have substance. And mm-hmm. that little girl is right to resist calling this person a father, not because she's an obstinate child, but because right. oh, this absolutely. is this is an incorrect title that he has not earned. Um, yes, and and, absolutely. and and control freaks hate being told that. But so it's really fascinating to me that. The thing, the journey Ophelia goes on is purely, again, whether there are literal elements acting upon her, it is all her doing. You know, yes, she she is pushing this boulder that no adult is encouraging her. Now she befriends Mercedes, but Mercedes is stuck in her own story. You know, oh, absolutely, Um, absolutely. And so I think it's really powerful. You know, putting a pin in this notion of uh, it's just a word, call this person father, and her actively resisting that, and then you see that. the fawn scene with the little brother at the end, like it's just a prick, just a, just a tiny, just a little bit Mm -hmm. of blood we need from him. Like, and she questions that. And I don't know. I just, I'm just really struck by in, in a world that we live in that wants to be so analytical and so black and white. And so like, are you in or are you out? We have to keep telling ourselves better stories. Yes. You know, you've got an Ophelia who, is this her subconscious acting upon her on her own behalf to protect her and conserve her? I don't know. But, little one, you are the daughter of a king, and Mm. this is a kingdom that is meant for you to inherit. And Reed, do you remember the opening narration where they say, let me scan up so I can see it, where it says this underground realm where there are no lies or pain." No lies or pain. And I right. don't read I don't right. read or hear that as a dulling, a narcotic effect. I hear that as every tear would be wiped away. Oh, absolutely. And, oh and, there's very
1: much heaven imagery in and right. in, in the language and anything. And I don't want to derail you, no. but it is it is worth saying two things. First of all, that Guillermo del Toro was raised Catholic, so Catholicism largely informs much of the way he sort of the language around which he, he sees the world. He has, he is now a lapsed Catholic. So he is no longer religious, um, but he has clearly not escaped some of the, some of the tropes or the language. And I think he would admit that. I mean, I think he as much has admitted that.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think ultimately, you know, this idea of needing to tell ourselves better stories and not being content with the way things are like, like, like a lot of our peers, um, a lot of our brethren, um, or reacting to the way things are. It would be so easy for Ophelia to just give in and buy in and say, you're right, guys, this all sucks. You know what I mean? Like, But she continues sure. this sort of inner journey that results, like what I wrote down that was previous to this conversation in responding to that final scene where she is in this majestic throne room and her father and mother are elevated on these massive piers and the fawn is beckoning her forth to own her title and lay claim to this princess ship what i wrote down is in dying we are welcomed home Mm. you know and i think Mm -hmm. i think there's such a need such a need for people of faith i'm not saying you unplug and you ignore and you just and you don't um be mindful and don't think about and ask questions about how you know the real world as it's playing out intersects with your faith or doesn't but what i do think is is a perilous moment at least as i observe what occurs is occurring in the church is we have forgotten the story we have forgotten we aren't telling ourselves the the story and we've lost the plot yeah, yeah and 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 i really did not intend any of this to be related to easter but i'll be doggone if it's not there, right in front of us, you sure. know, um, and, and I, I, I don't know. I just think you've got this war torn, you know, you 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 made it real clear in talking about what happens when the Mandrake is burned up and is well, hey, hey, Christian guy, is your story real or not real? Man, I, some days I just don't know. But yeah. there are mo- there are moments when what I'm not sure is real has a withering and watch how it affects the world around me. You know what I mean? Like Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You th-
1: you chuck it into the fire and watch what happens. Like right. there's a and 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 I do think there's a there's a there is an impact to some of the sort of the the the, the totems that we have. I'm going to uh, Man, my my brain is spiraling on like four different Places Right now, because this movie is rich and it welcomes that. But I don't want to exhaust our listeners or you as my co-host. So um, I'm going to try to parse out. There's there's three things I want to sort of address. The first is you said when you were talking about um, no, father is not just a word. Right. And then you very briefly, but almost knocked me over when you said it. It's not just a prick of blood at at the end, like sure. it's not right. And I want to hone in on that for, for maybe a minute and a half is, yeah, to her. It's like, no, I will not. I am protecting him. Yes. So, no, I will not to save us both. I will not give you his finger to to harm him in order to save it. Like, right. I will not do that. And in this story. That decision in the in the natural reality is shown to be her undoing. She dies because of it. In the labyrinthine reality, which that's what I'll call it now, the labyrinthine reality, that is what allows her the claim to her princess ship. Sure.
0: Self-sacrifice. Is that yep.
1: Self-sacrifice. And that is something del Toro said on record is very much what this film is partially about, is the sacrifices along the way, what he called the secret sacrifices along the way that help win the war, that help to, to further the goodness of of humanity in general, these these hid away places, these hid away sacrifices of people whose names we don't know that um, that suddenly, you know, further or save a life or make a difference. I will say I will. uh, I've referenced this uh, illustration before. It's a sermon illustration, and some listeners may find it somewhat cheesy, but I've I've referenced it before. I'm going to reference it again because I think it's 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 prescient to this conversation. The, the sermon illustration goes like this. An old man is walking along the beach and there are thousands and thousands of starfish along the beach. And as he's walking along, the old man's steps are slow and he walks with a cane and he walks and he reaches down and he picks up a starfish and he wanders closer to the water and he puts the starfish in the water. And then meanwhile, a passerby is watching him do this over and over and over again, but sees the, the thousands of starfish along the beach. And he walks up to the man and as kindly as he can say, why are you wasting your time doing this? You cannot expect to put all these starfish back into the water. What you are doing does not matter. To which the old man looks at him, ponders it for a moment, and then bends down, picks up a starfish, and goes and puts it in the water and says, it mattered to that one. Sure. And um, I think there can be this real resistance on our part to believe that what we do, if it does not have a platform, makes no difference. But the scriptures say, and I don't have it pulled up, but I will find it so that I can read it directly. The scriptures say that even if you give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, you will not lose your reward. And we have lost sight um, largely. We We want the platform. We want to win the war. Um, when the battle it many times is not is not won at the war, it's won in the hearts of little girls who won't let their their brother's yeah, yeah. finger be pricked, um, because that's what this is all about. I'm, I'm here to protect him. And right, um, right. and you and you talk about the stories we tell ourselves. <laughs> And yeah, I think we want to tell stories where we charge up the hill and lead an army of millions behind us um, when when the real story at play is a man who was abandoned by every friend he had and died alone on a cross and and therefore saved the world. Right. You know, like right. that's that's right. that's right. what we follow. And um and I apologize, listeners, that I'm getting a little emotional. I did not expect this. But um but, you know, I, I think that 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 there's an imperative to us that that what you do the the small acts of kindness that you do that will never make it to social media and that will right. never make it to CNN or will never make it to Fox News that will never be seen or applauded in this world that it matters significantly a moment of kindness right. that you share with a stranger or with a friend it matters tremendously it you know, matters it's, it's funny it's funny you're
0: drilling down there cuz like i remember and now it's it's such a shame our culture is where it is at the moment but i remember as a young Person of faith in the uh, post Columbine, immediately post Columbine world. Where do you remember? Gosh, I don't remember the the young woman's name, but there was a a young girl who um, was was killed in Columbine who was a Christian, and yeah. and there was this, there was this movement suddenly of this like she said yes scenario that in yes yes the scenario in Christendom yes. we love to like parade yes. out like if there was a gun to your head would you deny Jesus or would you own him and it's like man. Again, ignoring the extreme nature of some of the moments we find ourselves in currently, like that is not the question. The question isn't Mm -hmm. in a moment where a gun's to your head, are you going to own Jesus or not? The question is in that little moment by yourself in that other moment when you're walking past the homeless person, like it's, it's Mm -hmm. the tiny Mm -hmm. moments. Like you said, it's not, it's not the leading the charge and into battle. It's, Mm -hmm. did you give this person a cup of cold water or not? You know, yeah, and, and to
1: and to read that scripture very directly because I, I had to look it up. I felt bad that I couldn't quote it. It says Matthew ten. I'm just gonna I, I'm going to abandon the previous scripture that I had in mind, which is not that important. Uh, the conversation's gone somewhere different, and I think better. Uh, Matthew chapter ten, verse forty two. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. And I think that is in large part the. That's where we've lost the plot is in we've we've sought the glory of a platform and a mic and and a way to to spread to change the world and the way you change the world is not necessarily going to be by having the biggest broadest platform and making the biggest wave or or you know spreading spreading some sort of um self promoting kingdom or empire as right, it were right. The way you change the world, you and I were reflecting together in one of those off-mic conversations where we talked about, and I I won't get too deep in the weeds on this, but where we were talking about the value of someone who perhaps starts an institution and starts an organization, and then they are doing very active, chartable things in the world that has tremendous value, that has worthwhile, tangible, trackable benefits to it. And then we were pondering what about the person who's just preaching or what about the person who's just, you know, um, proselytizing a particular philosophy or something. And we were talking about the just the, the comparison, it wasn't a juxtaposition, the, um, the competition between active I'm doing something in the world versus I'm just over here talking. And the conclusion that you and I came to was basically, well, to change a perspective – Is in some way to change the world for good or ill Mm -hmm. to to move someone to to a place to where they see the world differently is to change the world, even if only on a microcosmic scale. And we've lost that. We've lost that belief that to simply minister to your family or to minister to your friends, be they two or three or one, that you are, in fact. To a degree, changing the world. But can and, I can I can I throw yeah, something at
0: you real quick? Because I sure. mean, it's off, it's immediately off of you, so I'm not rudely interrupting here. Um, oh, sure. Well, I am, but it's directly responsive to you. Because see, I hear that, and I think there are many people, not our listeners, because they're good, smart, discerning, beautiful reader people. Because <laughs> um, there there are people who would hear what you just said and think Reed just gave me license to continue to do what I'm doing, which is to to stand up for truth and to speak and to change this person's perspective, and I think mm, may- I maybe see, yeah. maybe you would tweak this. I-, I will tweak it for me, and it feeds into the movie. And maybe maybe you'll echo or counter, and that's okay because we're buddies who can do this uh, uh-huh. on on, a, on on a live mic on a hot mic. I think in telling ourselves better stories, we ultimately will live a better story and that living will aid in the altering of perspectives of those around us i think um mm-hmm. I, I don't know I, I guess what i'm trying to say is i think i am personally a little careful to because you know we live in a social media world where everybody thinks that they are actually convincing those not like them of their position and they just aren't you know what i mean like that's a real sure, of kind course. of cynical way i don't i don't mean that to be quite so negative but I no, guess, I understand. I, I guess I just think what I want to be about personally and this is hard because I'm a talker is is how do I live the story I'm trying to tell myself daily?
1: Sure, um, sure. I don't know. I don't know. Does that make well, sense? Well, and uh, you know, it it does make sense and I think it's a I think it's a worthwhile point. The because the, the the dark side of the moon to tell ourselves better, better stories is what we see playing out in social media as adopting a narrative. And then you reject what's outside of the narrative. Now, you and I would be in probably concrete lockstep agreement about what a better story would be sure. but to countless masses out there. The better story is the one they're proselytizing. Right. And the better story is the one that we would look at and go, that is like, like the captain is telling himself the best possible story. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat playing devil's advocate here, but right, the captain right. is himself is telling himself a story that from the outside we see and go, no, you are fostering evil and destruction and wickedness. But to himself, he is telling himself the best possible version, which is dominance. And, and like the, the way he so clearly treats Ophelia's mother as just a baby machine, right, like right, right. blatantly just like, I'm bless, not using that bless, word.
0: Blessed be the fruit.
1: right?
0: It's a handmade still reference. Um, <laughs> which well, but but see, but see, you're playing devil's advocate and I'm cool with that. Like. I might distinguish or, or 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 you know further nuance by saying, and again I, i'm I know I'm burying myself in my own sort of language here, but I think there's a difference between telling ourselves a better story and constantly being in pursuit of that and ordering that others be a part of our story. You know what I mean like sure, and i sure. i think I think that's where I would distinguish what we largely see going on, which is i don't know, like that feels different, it feels different. Than what, you know, like what you were sort of devil's advocating a moment ago. There is a way that even the even the language of story, which feels so kind of buzzwordy and and quote unquote edgy and relevant or what have you, but so many just don't bother with.
1: Mm, mm-hmm.
0: This seems like an odd interjection, and and you can edit this out if it doesn't go anywhere. But we're we're in we're on the heels. And it's really, it sincerely is not my interest to camp out on the fine details of this. But where a person with a very high platform, public platform, uh, an adult uh, belittled a teenager in a very public fashion. And this particular adult is a, is a, is a personality in our culture. And to, to many people of faith is a person of faith. And I remember when this moment happened, and, and again, I'm not interested in, well, you know, kind of what side of certain issues we're on as much as just as I watch that play out. The thin thread, the thin membrane that seemed to exist for an adult in our culture when these powers and principalities sort of take hold and you're at this upper level of sort of personality and, and what have you that, that your actual response would be to do this, to belittle this person. And, and, and and I know this seems like super random, but I'm, but I can't get away from this notion of there's something, you know, the, the scriptural reference of looking in the mirror, right. And, Mm. um, you know, help, help me out a little bit here, but the notion of we, we basically don't look in the mirror enough, right. We don't look in the mirror long enough. We, we, we see it ourselves and we, and we look away and we don't even remember what we just saw. Right. Right. And, and I think, there's so much of that happening in our, in our culture and and in the church, you know, and this, this story I'm referring to, that's what that feels like is. Yeah. Let's all be careful. (laughs) Let's all do a little bit of reflection. Let's all figure out the best, you know, a, a better story to tell ourselves that in telling ourselves that story, it is going to work. It's, magic if you will on us and that that's going to affect the people around us I feel like I'm just rambling at this point
1: and, No no uh, no and and yeah. you said you said something really really pivotal there because Good, it's going to work I was its, worried it doesn't it not <laughs> no it's it's going to work its magic i mean one of the quotes that she says that's so heartbreaking when she throws the mandrake into the fire she says you're getting older and you'll see that the, this is carmen her mother mm-hmm. uh, ophelia's mother says you're getting older and you'll see that life isn't like your fairy tales the world is a cruel place and you'll learn that even if it hurts and she throws the mandrake into the fire and she says magic does not exist not for you me or anyone else. And I think that's the real tragedy right there is I get so nauseous, emotionally nauseous first. And sometimes if the conversation progresses this long, physically nauseous. When someone dismisses optimism and idealism and fighting for something better by saying that's just reality. Oh, that's just the it. reality that we live in. Because I'm going to quote you, Mr. Nathan Rouse. Um, I, lo- I, in- I, love, I
0: love it when you do that.
1: I, kn- I know you do. I know you do. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Uh, uh, never mind. So um, <laughs> but you said in one of our very early conversations, you said whatever reality, you know, or would believe is going on, there is another reality taking place just beyond it. And your charge as a faithful believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, is to help in its ushering forth. Yes. And I cannot – so we're talking about Pan's Labyrinth, wherein a, a girl, a poor girl is thrust into a situation a horrific situation and at the same time she sees another reality beyond this and, and it is full of horrors sure, as well sure. and it is full of fears and it is full of, of perils and it is full of things that she has to sacrifice and it is full of pain and it also has its its joys and ultimately that that reality that she sees beyond this has an ultimate joy to it but i'm gonna i'm gonna read this and and then maybe Whoo, we could pan's labyrinth, everybody. So, um, so I'm going to read this, um, because this, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I wrote it down because it really struck me hard this time and it's not in the quotes on IMDb. When the mother dies in childbirth, Images of Ophelia, sort of, you know, looking at the empty room and packing up her things and and moving to the new room that she's staying in, and images of the funeral and images of the captain moving on and images of the baby brother um, are juxtaposed or or, or or layered underneath the language of the priest who's performing the eulogy. And the priest is not quoting scripture; he's he's reading a eulogy. And the fact that Guillermo del Toro wrote this screenplay and the fact that This is that the priest is not quoting scripture means that this is either a eulogy Del Toro has heard or one that he has invented. Um, I'm happy with either one of them, but this is what the eulogy says. It says, because the paths to the Lord are inscrutable, because the essence of his forgiveness lies in his word and in his mystery. Hmm. Because although God sends us the message, it is our task to decipher it. Because when we open our arms, the earth takes in only a hollow and senseless shell. Far away now is the soul in its internal glory. Because it is in pain that we find the meaning of life. Yes. And the state of grace that we lose when we are born. Because God in his infinite wisdom puts the solution in our hands. And because it is only in his physical absence that the place he occupies in our souls is reaffirmed. Hmm. That's the that's the that's the whole eulogy. Happy Easter, everybody! Happy Easter, everybody! There is this reality that we can say: you you take any sociopolitical issue, take your pick, draw it out of your Easter basket. There is it's way past Easter when this is episode, but (laughs) um, but draw it out of your basket. Any sociopolitical issue that you want to say, you can stand on one side or another. Man, I'm sorry, guys, I'm getting my preach on. I apologize. I'm going to scale it back. I'm going to keep this tight. You can stand on whatever side you want to. You can stand on the, yeah, I'd love for it to be that way, but this is reality. You can stand there. That's fine. As for me and my house, I will stand on the side that says, yeah, we'd love it to be this way. And we will continue to yes. proselytize, fight for hope in pray for and believe that there is a kingdom coming whose builder and maker is the Lord. Right. And we will continue to press forward into that reality while this reality is taking place. Because the truth is that, yes, there will be some Ophelias, there will be some doctors who die along the way. Can we talk for a second about the doctor and how the doctor stands and said to to follow action without question? That's something yep. only you, Captain, yep. would do. Yep. But I do not do that. You know, that there is another reality at which to which we belong. There's another kingdom to which we belong. And this reality can be whatever it wants to be. But there's another kingdom to which we belong, that we are charged with ushering forth the the and and speaking to and preaching to that reality in the face of everything else. It's why when the Empire stand, stood up and said the 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 fledgling followers of Jesus Christ will amount to nothing, they ran to the chopping blocks and they continued to you know to just since we're diving into Easter, <laughs> one thing that I saw and and I didn't love the movie very much, but it had one moment that stood out to me. Um, I, I finally saw the movie Risen. Right. Uh, shout out, shout out to one of our listeners, Philip Hurd. Thank you for uh, renting that for me. I appreciate it. Uh, I wanted to see something Easter related. He suggested this, um, and so and so here I watched Risen. And there is one moment where the the disciple Bartholomew is being pressured to reveal the location of the disciples of Jesus, right? And he's being pressured to deliver it under pain of, or threat of pain, threat of ultimate sure, death. Sure. Sure. And uh, they said, where is he? And he puts on this very sort of adopted. It's a little bit of a contrived moment. But he puts on this very sort of adopted, like, I'm scared, I'm I'm afraid, I'm nervous. And then finally he says, okay, just between you and me, I will tell you where they are. Okay? And so then he says, okay, where are the followers of Jesus? And he looks up, and then Bartholomew gets a wide grin on his face and says, they're everywhere. That's awesome. And I was like, dang, (laughs) that is so good. That is so good. This idea of like, yes, there is something beyond your cold, dead reality. I know that there will be those that fall by the wayside. I know that there will be shells that do not make it into the water. I know that there will be lives lost and pain suffered along the way. If Pan's Labyrinth shows us anything, it says that there will be lives lost and pain suffered along the way. But that as del toro i think has put it and again with the hubris of putting words into his mouth i think he would put it there are secret sacrifices taking place along the way that speak to a reality beyond lists that we all would would cherish being a part of and that we all should cherish being a part of and pressing forward into i'm spent i'm done (laughs) (laughs) oh (sighs) man pan's labyrinth everybody this is a great movie this is such a great movie
0: that is a great um movie.
1: so uh so you want to you want to bring it bring it down a little bit and bring in our old uh, friend uh uncle uncle david s pumpkins
0: yeah so i mean yeah go ahead yeah it to people i'm tired that's all right that's <laughs> all right we, we need to uh get the uh the fan on you you know get, get you going Spritz, <laughs> you, spritz
1: the bee spritz, hammond organ was spritz, spritz
0: you down a little bit with the water and give you a handkerchief <laughs> on the forehead get on back <laughs> out there <Leckie>. Lackey. <laughs> um, i can't go on i can't go on i'm, I'm go going on, on. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that we've ever actually quoted chris rock on the show um <laughs> so yeah uh, that has been an, uh, uh, a Pan's Labyrinth discussion. So at the end of every movie conversation we have, we do rank these films by a scale of numbers of David S. Pumpkins using three specific uh, metrics, that of style, scares, and substance. Um, while Reed uh, gets patted down, um, <laughs> I, w- I will lead on, in terms of style, I think there's very little I would point to and say i don't appreciate or like about the movie um i, I would wow i almost had the impulse to give it a five i mean like um, well let me let yeah. me push you because i will i mean it's
1: yeah it's straight up five for me
0: yeah i mean just the the execution of the entire production um the the richness of the storytelling at play um yeah, sure i'll do it i'll go i'll go for a five Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah,
1: I don't need to qualify mine too much. Listeners probably know by now how much I love this film. Del Toro fought tooth and nail to get it made, and I think his vision is, is very fully realized on the screen. Uh, five for me for style. Uh, for scares, I might ding it down slightly. There are some really creepy moments. Uh, some of the creepiest to me being what human beings do to one another. Um, but also the creature design of the fawn, that pale man sequence, the entire pale man sequence. There's several things in the film that are, um, that are genuinely sort of disturbing and unsettling. Um, but I think it's fair for me to probably land on a four for Scarce, yeah. Um, so uh, so that's, that's kind of where I'm gonna, yeah.
0: Come. And I'm, I actually was before you said that thinking of four myself. I mean, adding to that just the sheer wretchedness of of the captain's execution of Ophelia at the end. I mean, goodness gracious, I, I remember the very yeah. first time I saw that movie being like, dang, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Just <laughs> that just, that. That just, just happened, that. yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no All right, so two fives, two fours. So, on the subject of substance, I mean. Like, I can't remember what I said for Devil's Backbone, but I, I definitely am a much stronger appreciator of Pan's Labyrinth than Devil's Backbone, which I did appreciate Devil's Backbone. I mean, there's just so much going on here that, we, you know, we haven't even talked about, like, Mercedes story, the notion mm. of sort of mm-hmm. standing up in the face of that sort of authoritarian whatever you know uh, all, yeah. like there's so the many courage, yeah there's twice. so many different mm-hmm. angles that we didn't even quite get to i mean I, I i think it's i think it's a 5 for substance there's a lot at work here
1: you're going to get no argument from me i think this is absolutely a 5 for substance we could have a three hour conversation and probably not be done talking about all the different elements and ways that you could enter into this film. You can get lost in it. And I, I mean, I'm not in being the punny there. Yeah. I'm not being punny there. It's a labyrinth. You can get lost in, in terms of all of the things, all the metaphors are the symbolism, but what's great about it. I think I recall del Toro saying at one point that to him, the labyrinth is such a primordial symbol in so many different ways, depending on like what culture you find it in. Sure. But that unlike a maze, a labyrinth is not the place to get lost, but a, pa- a place in which to be found, which huh. I found compelling and beautiful and powerful that he would approach this story uh, that way. So yeah, five for me for substance with an unqualified five. I think it's, I think it's absolutely substantial. I
0: love how you occasionally do this to me where you're like in the last two minutes of talking, you drop this profound bomb that like would totally have colored the whole conversation i'm like dead gum sorry that's great if it wasn't a five Uh, for substance already i'd give it i'd give it a five just for that alone if that's a real real quote so Uh, where does that where does that leave us lackey
1: i'm not at all i'm not at all sad about this uh we give pan's labyrinth guillermo del toro i do think this is thus far the pinnacle of his work um, and so appropriately, the fear of god uh, david s pumpkins rating we give it nine point five wow david s pumpkins wow. for pan 's labyrinth that is that is sizable That's legit. that is quite sizable yeah so um, yeah, and i think I think it absolutely deserves every every inch of that rating um, I know the david s pumpkins meter can sometimes be a little sketchy in terms of you know quality of film to ratio, but this pan 's labyrinth is a Powerful film. It's a very affecting film. If you've somehow made it all the way through this conversation, have yet to see it. You know, we actually didn't spoil that much about some of the interior of the film. Uh, we talked a lot about the ending and some of the beats along the way, but, um, but yeah, it's definitely worth your checking out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, um... You can listen to, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. You can hear our social media cues in the, in the end credits and find out how to get in touch with us to continue this conversation. Uh, and then next week we will be bringing, uh, hashtag del Toro, Toro, Toro to a close, um, with, uh, his most recent success. Uh, go ahead and familiarize yourself once again with the good old shape of water. And, uh, and so Nathan. Read. Th- Thank you so much for having this conversation with me, man. I really
0: appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. No problem, man. We'll see you next week, guys. Bye.
1: The Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. To continue this conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can visit us on Facebook to comment on one of our posts or post there yourself. You can follow Reed on Twitter at Reed Lackey. You can follow Nathan on Twitter at the Nathan Rouse. Visit morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.